Welcome to the Yahoo Finance Presents podcast. I'm Alexis Christophorus. Thanks for listening and remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Stocks are not in a bubble. In fact, the bull market will likely continue. That's what Goldman Sachs' private wealth management advisors are telling their clients. But while the stock market has been on a tear, there are still risks that could derail the rally. In this podcast, Yahoo Finance's Julia LaRoche talks with Goldman Sachs' wealth management advisors, Sharman Mosavar Romani and Brett Nelson, about their outlook for the stock market in 2018. Every January, Goldman Sachs Private Wealth Management Group releases its yearly outlook to its high net worth clients. Joining us to discuss what the bank expects for the market in 2018 is Chief Investment Officer of the Private Wealth Management Group, Sharmin Mosavar Romani. Sharmin, welcome. Thank you very much. Okay. So a lot of folks see the market and they look at it and think, wow, it's really expensive. You all do not think that we're in a bubble. So why is that? We don't think we're in a bubble because we have such strong earnings. So one of the key themes that we've had for quite some time is that, and the title of our outlook is steady as she goes and unsteady as she goes. And the theme of steady as she goes is that there's very strong economic growth uh, growth is actually accelerating, not a huge amount, but sufficiently uh, to keep the momentum going. We're looking at very good earnings growth. We're looking at low inflation, low volatility of inflation. We're looking at very favorable monetary policy, very favorable fiscal policy, especially with the new uh, bill that just passed. So when we're looking at that combination, we're saying this is a very steady-as-she-goes backdrop, uh, and that is good for earnings, and we have a low probability of recession. When you have low probability of recession, the probability of having positive returns is very high. We're talking about positive returns well over 80%, 86%. So in that environment, we recommend clients stay invested. What's also very interesting and not discussed enough, I think, in our industry is that valuation alone is not a great indicator. Uh, in terms of going underweight equities. We have actually been expensive in the ninth decile, meaning equities have been cheaper 90% of the time um, uh, since uh, November 2013. And now we're actually in the 10th decile. So when we're looking at these types of numbers, you would say, oh, we should go underweight. Yet, Yet from November 2013 to the present, U.S. equities are up about 60%. The same would be true in the 90s in terms of valuations alone not being a great indicator. So we don't just rely on valuations. We're also missing some of the euphoria. If you look at the flow of funds, uh, where have most of the assets gone in terms of mutual funds and ETFs? You actually see a huge amount going into bond funds since the trough of this crisis, then into emerging market and developed market equities, and actually net outflows out of U.S. equities. Yet U.S. equities have been the best performing asset class. So we don't think we have that kind of a euphoria, and our recommendation to our clients is to stay invested, which is a theme we've had now for quite, quite some time. Now, I do want to ask you about CAPE, the cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio. It is at elevated levels, and some folks point to this and say, you know, that is a sign of trouble. What are they getting wrong when they're looking at CAPE? So when we look at the Schiller CAPE uh, and look at the long-term average, the long-term median, it's about 18. And people can look at the levels today and say that it is very expensive. However, when you have low inflation and low volatility of inflation, the average 
Schiller Cape is actually much higher. So we don't look as overvalued. If you look at the long-term median of 18, you might say, wow, we're about 70% overvalued. But when you actually look at the median since 1996, when we've been in this regime of low inflation and low volatility of inflation, we're actually maybe 25% overvalued. So it's a little bit expensive, but nowhere near as much as what people say. And the issue with just looking at CAPE is that if you used it as a trading strategy, you would be out of equities in 1992 and miss a 300% return. If you used it as a valuation metric and got out of, uh, out of um, this equity market in November 2013, you'd miss out on 60%. So it's actually not a good indicator to use as a trading strategy. You know, a lot of folks have talked about this, that the rally has been driven by just a few names, and I'm referring to the FANG stocks. And you argue this is a misconception. Why is that wrong? Yes, uh, you're quite right. We've been uh, making that point for quite some time. We actually first brought up the issue that this rally does not hang on the fangs in uh, the summer. And if you actually look at the returns of the S&P 500 x the fangs, you can see that this is not all driven by the fangs. So let's say U.S. equities in 2017 were up about 22%. If you take out the fangs, uh, which are about just under 11% of market capitalization, you're actually left with a return around 19%, just over 19. So you're actually talking about a difference of three percentage points. So assume the FANGs didn't even exist. So with your $100, instead of being in the FANGs, you're only in everything excluding those in the S&P 500, you'd have a return about 19%. So the idea that the FANGs are driving this rally is actually just mathematically incorrect. And when you look at the earnings, we look at a net income over time, and you're looking at the last 12 months through the third quarter, because that's all we really have complete data for. In fact, the earning, the net income of the FANGs only explain 8% of the total net income of the S&P 500. Now, obviously, there could be buybacks, and that could affect the earnings per share count. But in terms of the actual impact, people are underestimating the diversity, the earnings power of all the other companies in the S&P 500. Now, it sounds like you're pretty upbeat. You're bullish on U.S. equities and the U.S. economy in general. So I have to ask you, what could derail this? In our outlook this year, we actually have a very long list of things that could uh, derail it. And that's why we have a component of saying unsteady as she goes. And that's the undertow that we worry about. The problem is these aren't things that we can actually really anticipate. The list is long. We start with geopolitical issues, first with North Korea. Then we look at U.S.-China relations, and we worry about U.S.-China relations both from a geopolitical perspective as well as from a trade relations perspective. Then we look at the Middle East, and there's always something to worry about there, whether we're talking about what happens to Iraq and Syria, whether we talk about what happens to Iran and the nuclear deal, what happens to Saudi Arabia with their reforms and the issues in terms of the, uh, whether it's a war in Yemen or any uh, issues that go on between Saudi Arabia and Iran that could affect the region or the price of oil. We worry about a, a Pakistan that has nuclear capabilities. So there are a lot of things in the um, Middle East also. Then we go to terrorism. Terrorism in OECD countries has been on the rise, so that's something to worry about. 
We also worry about cyber attacks. Now, not the smaller ones, not even something that's major in terms of looking at, for example, Equifax and social security numbers, but something that could in any way affect infrastructure, that could affect, uh, for example, the cables underneath the in the ocean, on the ocean floor that is used for all kinds of communications. So that's something to worry about, but one cannot really anticipate those. So our recommendation is these things could derail the equity market, but our recommendation is to stay invested. That doesn't mean we don't worry about a correction. We could get a 5 to 10% correction. The probability of a 5% downdraft is over 100%. It's about 100%, 96%. Uh, if we look at the risk of a 10% uh, downdraft, it's about 65%, let's say two-thirds. So it's pretty significant, and we tell our clients that be prepared for that, but don't assume that you can trade it, because the timing is very difficult and the tax hit is huge. So let's say a client has invested in equities and some of those assets are invested at the trough of the market. For them to actually make money by trading and getting out of equities in anticipation of a correction, the market actually has to go down 24% to make up for the taxes they have to pay if they're a New York state or California state taxpayer. So take the high tax states, they have to overcome that tax hurdle, and then they have to have perfect timing. And 24, 25% is a pretty big move, and that's not what we're anticipating. Well, you do manage money for some high net worth clients, and I'm sure they express some of their concerns. So I have to ask you, you just mentioned taxes. Have they expressed any concerns, specifically in New York, about the tax reform? The general sense is that tax reform will be good for the economy on a uh, one or two year horizon. We actually have some interesting exhibits that show the uncertainty around the impact of tax cuts. The multiplier effect is very uncertain. For example, a tax cut for a low or middle income person, a household has a lot more impact on the economy than a tax cut for a high net worth individual. Similarly, government expenditures have a higher uh, multiplier effect. So the key discussion is the uncertainty around uh, the impact of this tax cut more than anything. And then there's the long-term question of increasing debt to GDP. And if we didn't have this tax cut, debt to GDP by 2027 would be about 91%. Depending on different estimates, the number could go up to 96, 97% debt to GDP. So that alone is not going to be that disruptive. And our clients see all the data and the analysis. Mm -hmm. And a follow-up, how are your clients dealing with a Trump presidency? In terms of uh, the economy, the regulatory environment, I mean, it's such a broad question. That is a really broad question. So let's talk about um, in terms of their investments. Um, we have you know, tax reform, which could benefit them, um, but also the potential for turmoil in the presidency. We did a client call early on uh, in 2017, and we looked at the different factors about the Trump presidency. And when you look at some of the key initiatives, they are what any Republican president would have done. So tax reform, uh, less regulation. So some of those are considered pretty much in line with the typical presidency. Some of the other factors, such as the use of Twitter, is very different. And we have said uh, that it's going to be unconventional 
But we have a view of U.S. preeminence. We've had this view since the trough of the crisis, and we think that's the dominating theme. U.S. is preeminent because of the strength of its institutions. And that is what drives the economy. That is what's going to drive long-term growth. That's going to drive long-term regulation. And as long as U.S. institutions remain strong, um, which have certainly been tested over the last year, and they remain strong, um, then this is just a, a different style of uh, presidency. Got it. Well, something new in your report this year, cryptocurrency mania. You are warning that we are in a bubble when it comes to crypto. So why is that? Uh, we actually have three great exhibits, and uh, we recommend your viewers go and actually look at the exhibits if they're interested in cryptocurrencies. It's on the Goldman Sachs uh, website. And the first exhibit shows past equity bubbles. So you can see the NASDAQ. You can see S&P 500 in 2000. We showed Japanese equities in the late 80s, early 90s. And you can see the increase in those areas. So for example, looking at NASDAQ up four and a half fold. Then we're looking at uh, the same exhibit, and we add to it as an overlay tulip bulbs in the, between the period 19, uh, 1634 and 1637. And then we add to that Bitcoin. And you can see these huge bubbles that everybody was so worried about uh, that people talk about in terms of Jap Japanese equities or US uh, .com era equities. And you see that those are actually look like a flat line. And then there's a small increase in tulips. And then you see Bitcoin uh, sort of skyrocketing upwards at uh, 45 times uh, increase. And you can see that it just it is so much greater than any bubbles we have ever seen. And then you overlay that in the third graph with Ether. And you can see that even Bitcoin is flatlined relative to the price action in Ether for the last two years. And so when you look at those prices, what is actually justifies that? Nothing. Uh, and we think it's very important to differentiate between cryptocurrencies and blockchain. So the blockchain technology is what cryptocurrencies use. And that's a very viable technology. It's going to improve. Financial industry could use it. Transportation industry, shipping companies, um, food distribution companies can use the blockchain. So the blockchain can be quite effective. In fact, there was a great article quoting Bill Gates that he thought it would be a, a reduction in corruption in emerging markets because of blockchain, because you can keep track of everything. So the view on cryptocurrencies has nothing to do with blockchain. It has to do with cryptocurrencies themselves. What is their value? What do they actually do that is that useful? Is it a great medium of exchange? Can you use a little piece of Bitcoin to buy coffee and then Bitcoin increases so much and suddenly that coffee costs you 10 times more? Or if you are the seller of the coffee and you have received Bitcoin and Bitcoin is down nearly 50%, suddenly you sold your coffee for half the price. So something that has 100% volatility is really not that useful as a medium of exchange. It's certainly not a store of value. From high to low, some of these cryptocurrencies have been down just under 70%. So it's not a store of value. Somebody who bought it at those higher levels in a short period of time could lose a huge amount of uh, value. So it's definitely not a store of value. So then the question becomes, what is it actually useful for? It, it, sh surely um, we know from cybersecurity people that countries like North Korea use it. Uh, they use it to uh, improve their finances because of all the sanctions. We know that they have hacked into exchanges and wallets and taken money. We know that they can mine. So is it useful for uh, 
certain nefarious objectives? Yes. But is it a great medium of exchange and something that's going to be that useful and has some inherent value to it? Absolutely not in our view. It doesn't mean some kind of uh, digital currency won't be useful. If, for example, the Federal Reserve, after studying this, decide that some kind of digital currency on the blockchain could be useful in two, three, four, five years, yes then it could have a lot of value and be useful as a different way of using the dollar, but not in its current incarnation. So what do you think happens? Do you think it crashes? One of the things with uh, manias is that you have no idea how far something can go. Uh, who would have thought that just a tulip bulb, and in fact it applies to hyacinth bulbs as well, could increase so much? They were up uh, so significantly, up uh, in ridiculous prices for things people hadn't even seen. So could the prices go back up again? Yes. Could the hype continue? But we don't think there's any real substantive value to these currencies. Charmin Mosavar Romani, CIO of Goldman Sachs Private Wealth Management Group, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Yahoo Finance Presents podcast. I'm Alexis Christophorus. Be sure to rate, review, and share this podcast. And remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Music.